Welcome to Jotting Down Notes, Part 2, Episode 20 of our Jazz Backstory Podcast. In Part 1, we heard from Frank Foster, Bill Holman, Mike Benny, Ray Conniff, and Stefan Harris. Their views on composition, inspiration, process, and goals for their music varied greatly. One thing they all shared, they were all instrumentalists before becoming composers. This is the norm in the jazz world, and my unscientific observation is that piano players make up the highest percentage of writers, with saxophonists following in second place. A prime example of a saxophonist writer is Oliver Nelson, whose work ranged from innovative large ensemble compositions to movie scores and music for network television dramas. His son, Oliver Jr., also a sax player and arranger, manages the Oliver Nelson music legacy. He shared anecdotes about his father's talents and the iconic tune and LP, Stolen Moments. So let me ask you, um, back to yourself, musically, what's your favorite thing to do? Um, to play. Um, I like to play more than anything, but... My dad told me something, and I never really thought about it. I'm starting to think about it more. He said, players come and go. You'll see. You'll see great ones. But if you can write well, it you can make it. And he found that out. And he was really unique, though, Monk, because he could actually play well, and he could write well. And see, some guys don't have the ability. Sly Hampton can do the same thing. Being able to play and being able to write um, or so I need to really spend the time. I took some arranging classes in college and I really need to go back, but writing is a craft and it takes as much, if not more time to write as it does to practice and play. So trying to justify that time is, is well, just when I did the, the transcriptions for my doctorate, it took forever. You know, you're dealing with Sibelius and you're going back and forth and trying to make that stuff work and Hubert is playing that, all this stuff. <laughs> But I really want to get into writing more. I yeah. want to. You know what you said about your father being able to play and and um, and write equally well. It it uh, it. I'm thinking of this record. And um, absolutely, I've been revisiting this. I'm a, I'm I still hold on to my favorite LPs, and there's a quote from him in the liner notes. He said, uh, he said, I get tired of all these guys having all the fun on my dates. So, you know, he gave himself some solos. That's right. So he was always thinking. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, you know, some of us get up, we just start blowing the little licks that we've learned. And, but to really think about what you're doing, and Jamie Abersall pushes that idea of really thinking about what you're going to play and how to structure it. And if you listen to what he did, he was always coming up with a neat idea, and he would not let it die before he worked it. Well, go listen. I mean, I'm sure you've listened to this a few times. The, the original recording of Stolen Moments, his tenor solo on there, he's like, he's composing as he goes, literally. Oh, and yeah. He, he's play, he's playing theme. triad pairs. Yeah. Beautiful. And oh, it's such yeah. an interesting contrast. You know, you've got... Uh, Eric Dolphy, who's like all over the place. He's all over the place, <laughs> and then you're you're. I mean, I, I just I just wore it out 
I got a call from Jamie Abrazo once, and he said, Jamie said, Oliver, did your dad write that solo out before he, before he played it? And I was highly insulted by that. I said, of course he didn't. But he had been thinking about it a lot. He had been thinking about what he wanted, what he wanted to do. He said, because that's almost a perfect solo. And it is. It starts simple. He builds those ideas. He goes up, and then he brings it back down again. Um, it's, it's just a, a magnificent study piece in the art of, of jazz improvisation. How did he conceive of new themes? Did you ever witness? He was, I, I actually witnessed a couple of times, especially with the, with the, the television stuff. He was doing an Ironside once, and there was a race thing in there. We're sitting in the pool. He kept a little piece of <laughs> And he was thinking about the And he said, you know, I got an idea for this. <laughs> and he scribbled some stuff because he had perfect pitch. So he could he knew exactly what he was writing all the time. Must have always been um, thinking about something musical, I would guess. Always, but you know what? The, the interesting thing about dad was kind of like me. If you gave him four weeks for a show, he would never start on it four weeks before. He always did his most creative stuff when he was under the gun. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he would write 16, 17 hours. I try to stay up with him. It's four o'clock in the morning. He's finishing up because he never allowed anybody to orchestrate. He did all that stuff himself. So he would come up with the stuff, write it out. He was very meticulous and very thorough about how he lined his paper, everything. So five o'clock in the morning, he's finishing the last score for us for a scene. We drive to Universal Studios, because this was before emails and sending files. Drop it off, go back home, take a shower. The copyists have got it by six. At eight o'clock, <laughs> musicians are sitting on the sound stage and he's got to conduct all day. Oh my Lord. Oh, so it was a really pretty, really pretty tough schedule. And he learned that you're no better than your producer. If your producer does not like you, you're done. We get a glimpse of the pressure that successful writers operated under and the potential for their work being dismissed on a whim by an all-powerful producer. Oliver Nelson worked in the pre-composing app and sound file world, writing music with score pad and pencil, ear, and intuition. Current writers have embraced the technology of programs like Finale and Sibelius. So it was a bit of a surprise when I visited Eastman School of Music composer Dave Ravello. His music room included a huge drafting table, much like the workstation of an architect, covered with yellow score pad paper. He spoke about composing and the role of the computer and addressed the issue of handing over your musical intent to an improvising soloist. Here's Dave Ravello from our 2012 session. Well, thanks for taking some time today. And um, as the camera's kind of catching, I'm seeing sketches all over the room. And <laughs> I'm really glad to see real paper, to be honest with you, in this day and age. Yeah, I, uh, it's part of the process for me. And so it, uh, the computer has its things, and in many ways it's made life easier as a composer and arranger, but for me, I still am uh, 
I have to work on paper. And so I write all my scores longhand. I do all my sketching and my full scores longhand and then put it into the computer to make parts for the musicians. And I'm still on the quest of uh, the best pencils that I can find. And the paper you see, the King brand, this is all King brand manuscript paper. And uh, it was used by Bob Rookmeyer, my hero, and Gil Evans, and Al Cohn, and everybody on the East Coast, at least, all used King brand paper. King was Which the king, king, sort of. King was the king. <laughs> <laughs> what, what does the putting of pencil on paper do for you that the computer doesn't? A couple things, and, and uh, Stravinsky said it w much better than I could, but the, the tactile sense of the hand and touching the paper, and so the mind's ear is connected with the arm and the pencil and making the motion. And in the computer, there is, there's the mouse, but we don't really, you're not making a mark on the paper. And so for me, that's a commitment to that note or that voicing, or it is saying that I believe in this. And there's a certain strength in that, that if I'm gambling and I'm combining notes that you wouldn't think should go together, but I believe in those and I make that mark on the paper, there's a thing about that. And that is not, it doesn't happen the same way on the computer. Now, you obviously would have been writing in, in the days before you could hear it back. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that moment, you know, you're in front of the band, just written this thing, and you think it's going to work. But, but hearing it for that first time is like, yeah. not like nothing else, right? It is like nothing else in the world. That's exactly right. And uh, I don't really, even though the technology exists, I don't really depend on the computer to play back for me. I still trust my own sense and I still get that feeling. Mm -hmm. So I might use the computer to play back to check something, but as far as putting in the entire piece and hearing it play back and, oh, I did good, yay, and then take it to the band, no, it's still that experience for me that bringing it to the band and hearing it for the first time live with them playing the notes that I put on the paper, and it's still that experience. And oh. nothing touches that in the entire world is that experience of the first hearing of something that you've created. How much of what you write can you hear in your head? Well, I've been writing music since I was in junior high school. Not that anybody should ever hear those <laughs> attempts at that point, but it's been a lot of years. So uh, it's a two-part answer, I guess. I can hear... A lot of things in my head and if I were to write something very straightforward then I can hear all of that in my head as I'm creating it but for me I'm interested in stretching what I know and what I can do and so I'm gambling more than I'm not gambling especially if I'm writing for my own ensemble so I can still hear that but I don't always know if it's gonna work but you know I spent uh, 15 years with the legendary Bob Brookmeyer and he didn't always know. And I'm good friends with Maria Schneider. And she doesn't always know. And these are people that have been writing music for Bob, especially longer than I have. And Bill Holman, too, we're friends also. And he sometimes is like, I'm not sure if it's going to work or not. So that part of that never goes away, which is a good thing, I think, because it means you're trying to expand yourself instead of, you know, if you're just writing straightforward things and banging them out, you should be able to hear those and know that, okay, I can mail it off and forget about it, but I'm not one of those guys, so... Something must have inspired you when you were in junior high school, some chart or some writer, can you recall? 
Yeah, I remember like it was yesterday. Actually, it was my grandfather who had a big band on the road in the 1940s. And uh, he lived to be 92 just recently and was probably the most amazing man I'll ever know in my life. At 90 years old, he wrote his autobiography. And then he was teaching it to people in their 60s and 70s. His book is called How to Have a Great Life at Any Age. And I remember distinctly his birthday was on July 4th, and it was a backyard party at my parents' house for his birthday. And I asked him something about a particular song that I had heard, and he took a paper plate and he flipped it upside down, and he drew five lines for the staff and a treble clef, and he wrote out the first few measures just out of his head. And I think... Trying to look back, that must have been the moment when I realized, wow, I want to be able to do that someday. When you write a chart, to me, I always run into this bit about, okay, I've done an intro, done the melody, whether or not it has a bridge. And then you get to that point, what am I going to do now? And I think Maria Schneider, she, she said this to me, and I think it came from Bob Brookmeyer, and he said, Wait as long as you can before giving in to a soloist. Yeah. Does that sound like something he would say? That's a Brookmeyer thing for sure. Yeah. When nothing else can happen, that's when the first solo should happen. So you should do everything you can until then. Yeah, that's from Brookmeyer for sure. <laughs> so what are those things that you should be trying to do before you go there? Uh, what I think about is continuing to develop whatever material is going on before I turn it over to a soloist because the problem that uh, Bob is addressed in print and lectures and everything is that you turn it over to the soloist and they play what they've been working on in the practice room and it has nothing to do with what has happened up to that point. So uh, I try to guide that a little bit and I also try with my own band at least where I have control over the solo of the members of the band to make sure they understand that you're part of my piece. You know, Brookmeyer said it best when he said, a soloist is a compositional continuance. Those are his words, not mine. <laughs> but I'll take them yeah, and we... I use them. In the last episode, we traced the path of a newly conceived musical idea to its premier performance. Let's review that path. Composer, to arranger, to orchestrator, to copyist, to performer. You might toss in publisher and conductor, and the fact that all these tasks may be done by one person. Perhaps the least recognized skill is that of the music copyist. Lisa Peratt is a talented Australian jazz musician who relocated to the U.S. to pursue her passion for the music. She speaks about working as a copyist, that last link in the chain. I've learned so much. Um, I have hundreds of composers' music on my computer. Um, I've learned so much from copying music, it's not funny. Um, I did start doing it professionally uh well let me back up me and nikki took um exams every year there's uh, a system in australia 
part of the classical music system um, Australian Music Examinations Board. So you could take like classical piano, classical, whatever um, exams, but you also, every year we would take musicianship exams and a theory exam. They were even, they were, they were separate. So in other words, like how to beautifully write music as a young kid and they're graded levels. And so those lessons have paid off for me big time because I, you know, um, so in the mid nineties, uh, I had a transcribing job of all of book, a little stuff for, a, for a publisher, but he'd never end up getting the rights for it. But that was really wonderful. Just, I, I transcribed all that by ear from a cassette tape, um, and wrote it all out by hand. I think it was 98 is when I started on computers and that was, um, doing big band charts for somebody. And I would go to their place. I didn't have a computer. I didn't know how to turn on a computer. I didn't know how to reboot a computer. I didn't know anything about a computer, but I could write you a big band chart. <laughs> so it was on Cubase. And when I started, so in um, 2002, I, I bought the program Sibelius. I was playing with Diva, um, Diva Jazz Orchestra. I joined them in, ooh, when did I join Diva? 1998. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, and they used to um, have a guy who was in his 90s still copying, um, hand copying, and there were a ton of mistakes. So every rehearsal, um, we would spend a lot of time correcting mistakes. And I had very quick ears. It would drive me insane that of hearing the mistakes and sometimes we'd have to keep going. I'm like, but but second trombone has an F natural, you know. Uh, so I, I, I went up and said, hey, give me a shot. I am, um, let me, you know, copy one of Tommy Newsom's big band charts here. And um, I guarantee we will not have to correct any notes in the rehearsal. That's how it started. What did so you get was, from? What did you get from Tommy Newsom? A handwritten so I, score. Handwritten big score, and I ended up doing a ton of stuff for Tommy. And, um, and he, I learned the ethics of copying from Tommy. He told me some great. Um, he told me some great stories. After the very first one, I'm like, so Tommy. Uh, I don't know whether to ask you. Sometimes I know there's a missing flat, but I know it's all in unison. Do you want me to ask you about that? Or what's the, you know, what's the ethics here? What's, you know, what, what should I do here? And in answer, he said, when um, Duke Ellington was trying out a new copyist, he would put two mistakes in the chart and expect the copyist to correct them and not ask him about it. And Tommy said, I want, you know, I want, you're supposed to make, you're going to make me look good. I was like, got it. The role of helping someone else sound good is a recurring thread in jazz. The copyist makes the arranger sound good. The pianist makes the singer sound good. The orchestrator makes the composer sound good and the rhythm section makes the whole band sound good. Trombonist and conch shell virtuoso Steve Teray embraces a similar role, but with his music, he wants to make the audience feel good. What gives me joy is making people happy. You can feel better. You know, uh, 
I was talking about playing with Hugh Masekela. I forgot to tell you why I brought that up. He told me that when he was a kid, he used to cut high, in high school, he used to cut school and go play with the older guys at rehearsals and stuff. And they let him play. They said, well, you're a talented young man. You can come on and play. But, you know, he was a kid, so he was cutting up and being silly and stuff. And after a while, they said, okay, calm down, man. You got to focus here, man. You know, uh, you know, we can have fun, but you have a responsibility, too. Of course, he's a kid. You know how kids feel about the word responsibility. <laughs> so, so he told me, he said, I, I said, well, this is fun. He said, yeah, that's cool. But in our culture, a musician is like a doctor. You're supposed to make people feel better. You're supposed to heal people. And, you know, that really went boing. You know, that, that really rung a bell with me. And so, you know, they, I always kind of felt that way, but I didn't realize it. You know, when he said that, it's, oh, yeah. You know, that's one of the reasons, you know, that you do things. And a musician is, is another kind of healer. You know, it's not like giving you medicine or something like a pill, but yeah. spiritual food. And um, also what I love about music and especially jazz music is it brings all people together from different cultures, races and what have you. It brings everybody together. And that's, what, that's what's happening. You know, all this divisiveness. <laughs> I do love quotable musicians. In this episode alone, we've heard these pearls of wisdom, and I quote, If your producer does not like you, you're done. A solo is a compositional continuance. You've got to make me look good. And all this divisiveness, yuck. And we're not done yet. Band leader and celebrated composer, Maria Schneider, one of our go-to interviewees, offers her own future quotes in the context of enlightening her composition students. And I try to just show them, you know, how I dance around and try to yeah. figure, in, figure my way into music. And then I go through technical things, modal things. And, I, and I, sometimes I sit down and I show them the modes. And that each of, if you take all the modes that come from the white keys on the piano, that is the... Um, if the mode meaning if you if you pick as ground zero one of the notes like if you take the white keys and you go from C to C and you have C on the bottom and then you move up from there that you have a different proportion of whole steps and half steps than if you put an A on the bottom mm -hmm. and that proportion of whole steps and half steps in relationship to that bottom note changes the feeling of that from sad to bright or bright to dark or happy or however you want to talk about it. And the, the, the association with that is pretty universal. I think everybody would, would say that F to F on the white keys, Lydian, is the brightest. And if you move up a fifth from that and you go C to C, you have the major scale. That's still pretty bright. It's not quite as bright as Lydian. And if you go up a fifth from that, you get to something called mixolydian. It has one note that's a little bit darker. It gets just, it's still happy because it's got that major third. And if you keep, so slowly the things get darker and darker. So if you can find beauty, 
chances are there's organization behind that. And then it, when you discover what that organization is, you can continue organiz organizing to try to create more beauty. I always feel like um, the thing that makes each person unique is that you know, you're you. Nobody on earth can imitate you. Nobody can be more you than you are. So the, your job is to become you to the deepest degree that you can. And that's where your beauty and, and that's where your mastery is, is mm -hmm. in developing yourself. And I think so often in jazz, it's really easy to look at other people and say, oh, he's a master. I have to try to be like that. I have to follow him. No, you have to find your, the depth of yourself and be disciplined and develop yourself to the same degree that those people were disciplined and mm -hmm. develop themselves. And that's the thing that nobody can imitate. And that's where your strength, and that's where your gift is. That's what people want to see, is feel the uniqueness of each other. That's, that's where you really communicate something fresh with somebody. It's hard to do that. And I love music, but I think what I love about music is it's a valve for other things. You know, mm. I love life, and I want more time to live, you know? And to me, music is one of the problems with musicians. I think they get so caught up in making records and get going to the next project. But, and very often the person's first record is the most powerful mm -hmm. because that record represents years of just working on your own and doing other things in life. And then suddenly you become so busy doing your music, you aren't paying attention so much to the other things in your life because they aren't as important as the music. But what feeds the music? Music is fed by a deep and rich life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to have other things in your life that you can do with equal, you know, love. Wow. Wow is right. How do you follow that? Well, here's an idea. Not as profound, perhaps. But let's take a listen to the process of creating a big band arrangement from scratch from initial idea to a finished product. My mind tends to wander during my daily dog walks, and one morning, a brief swinging lick made itself known in my head. It went sort of like... No key, that was all I had. We cut the walk short so I could get to a piano and jot down the notes. With some tweaking, alterations, and repeats, the lick turned into a riff, and the riff turned into a melody. The result is our podcast theme song. Here's a reminder from Season 1, and the tweaked version for Season 2. Same tune, different instrumentation, and tempo. Coincidentally, at that time, I had a self-imposed commission to write a new chart for an annual event at my alma mater. This new tune, now three phrases set in the 12-bar blues form, had possibilities to fill the bill, but lacked enough musical content to justify a full jazz band treatment. It needed a bridge, a contrasting B-section, like hundreds of other jazz composers, I made the expedient choice and borrowed George Gershwin's bridge from his I Got Rhythm. In time-honored jazz tradition, 
I kept the chords, tossed George's melody, and wrote a bop-like tune to contrast with what I already had. Here's the eight-bar bridge. Now I've got an A and B melody. Let's arrange it as an A-A-B-A, and we have an actual jazz composition. Now the actual work begins. For a jazz ensemble, we have to stretch out the tune, assign specific music to 16 musicians, and create a variety of textures while maintaining a cohesive structure. I took Bob Brookmeyer's advice about soloists to the extreme, deciding to write a chart without improvised solos, a first for me. Instead, I took the riffs to the extreme. How many of them could I compose and employ? In this chart, you're going to hear nine different riffs competing for space in two different sections, a bit like a semi-deranged New Orleans jazz band. For added listening, Jason, my tech wizard, has employed some cross-fading, moving back and forth between the computer-generated audio and the actual big band recording. See if you can hear the difference. Here is the debut of Riff City, performed by the SUNY Fredonia Alumni Jazz Band.
goes wild. Thanks for listening. In our next two episodes, we'll focus on the weighty subject of jazz and race. See you on the flip side.